0: I'm Bub. Welcome to Bub on Purpose, the podcast. I believe that a life driven by purpose can lead to a more fulfilling life. So I ask passionate people why they do what they do. I dive deep into conversations with people of all ages who have developed their life purpose and who can inspire, offer advice, share techniques for developing purpose, and articulate their perspectives. As this podcast is in the early stages, I'm really just excited to dive in and learn myself and share that with you guys. So if you're here in this early stage, I really appreciate you for listening and I hope you take away something valuable. It's not just this generation's fault that they feel so lost and that they're all trying to find their calling but can't. You've just been given more opportunities than anyone else ever had before.
1: You have to try to look for something deeper than the culturally constructed.
0: There's urgency to this passion thing, so I think you're really on to something.
1: We're talking about whether we survive on the planet or not. I would live my life as if I was gonna
0: write a book about it. What would people say about me at my funeral?
1: You really have to have a healthy disrespect for other people's opinion.
0: You know life is not this guarantee We're in, there's no guarantee in life. The truck runs me down right after this interview. I've fucking died doing everything I could possibly have done. The voice inside of you that's asking those questions deserves to be honored.
1: That's your truth, that's your clarity, that's your passion.
0: In this episode of the Bub on Purpose podcast, I speak with Jack Fellows. He is a leader in the weather and climate research community, was Climate Change Science Institute Director Emeritus at Oak Ridge National Laboratory and Vice President of UCAR, the University Corporation for Atmospheric Research, among many other titles, and is currently based in Boulder, Colorado. In our conversation, he shares a bit on his life path, and his concerns for humanity regarding climate change. Because this is my longest episode yet, I thought I should share with you that I will often listen to podcasts at 1.5 times regular speed, which can easily be done by pressing 1x in your listening app, wherever you listen to podcasts. I typically do this because it allows me to listen to more podcasts and it helps me stay focused because the pace requires me to. I totally understand that you may enjoy the natural speed and rhythm of regular speed, but I want to put it out there in case you didn't already know that was
1: possible. Let's jump right into it with Jack Fellows. So when I finished school, I actually competed to be a science consultant in the U.S. Congress. And I, okay. sp- I spent a year in the House of Representatives, um, working on policy issues. Mm -hmm. And I ended up playing baseball with a bunch of senators, and one of them was invited by Ronald Reagan to go to the White House, and he invited me to go with him. So I spent a year in the Congress and then 13 years in the White House. I was going to go to the White House just for a year. Wow. But I ended up overseeing all the civilian research in the federal government and so it was really really policy oriented incredibly interesting i mean i did so many different things i always say that i went in as a 32 year old and came out as a 60 year old because there were so many complicated problems that get punted to the white house to Mm be resolved yeah so it ranged from uh, negotiating the participation of the Russians in the International Space Station. So I went to Moscow about the time the Soviet Union was falling apart. And, wow. and generals were trying to sell me helicopters and tanks. And it was just really wild. Wait, well, maybe I can get into it later. But why, why were they trying to sell you? Because it was so chaotic. People were trying to make a buck. Wow. And they were selling state resources. <laughs> <Jeez>. <laughs> yeah. Oh. It was so crazy. I was being pulled aside, you know, in formal meetings with people. It was like a black market scenario, you know, Jeez. where people were just trying to survive by yeah. by selling whatever they could sell because they thought that the their money system was going to collapse at, at some point.
0: Wow geez
1: but it was you know it was so that whole period that was you know almost 15 years was focused on national level policy Mm -hmm. and that's a really interesting world to be involved in there's a there's some aspect of kind of hurry up and wait Mm -hmm. like i wrote hundreds of decision memos two-page decision memos that never got acted on okay but when they did it was remarkable. I mean, you know, there was – I wrote a, a piece of legislation that became law. Um, wow, wow. When I was in the White House, lots of different kinds of policy establishments and stuff like that. And I really enjoyed it. When I went to the White House – so I was uh, – had a PhD at that point. I was going to go back to the University of Maryland. And mm-hmm. I – every year I kept asking for another sabbatical year. And University of Maryland was very gracious about that because they just thought I was doing a national, you know, uh, community service. Yeah. But after the third year, they said, look, you got to make a choice. And it was so interesting in the White House that I decided I would stay until uh, my 13th year. Kay basically said, you have not been home for dinner for 13 years. Wow. I think you need to make a choice. (laughs) <laughs> so it turned, it turned out that uh, that afternoon I got a phone call from uh, the National Center for Atmospheric Research here in Boulder. Mm-hmm. And they had been pursuing me for a couple of years and they offered me a job and I accepted it on the phone. I'd never even been to Boulder before. Wow. And we moved out here. And that's kind of when I got, you know, my background has always been in the weather and climate community, but I took that detour through that national policy yeah. uh, experience. And it really helped me a lot, even when I came to uh, Boulder. And then when, for so that second phase of being back in the sciences was kind of a mix of leadership and, and science. So, I had been out of the sciences for so long, really, that, you know, I wasn't doing, you know, state of the art science anymore. But I started and I was leading an organization of 1500 scientists. So Mm -hmm. my focus for the next 16 years was about leadership. Yeah. How do you you get people, 1500 people on the same page? Wow. You know, and the bottom line of that is, you know, how do you make people feel like what they're doing contributes to the overall mission of an organization? Yeah. Like the,
0: almost their purpose of why they're doing it.
1: Yeah. Yeah. So they really feel a part of it. And, you know, so for those 16, when I came to, so NCAR is run by something called UCAR. Yeah. And I was the vice president of UCAR. The president was, Just a quintessential researcher that had no idea of why you would even have a strategic plan. Mm. So I created a strategic plan for all of the fifteen hundred people, and everybody' personal performance appraisal was tied to the strategic plan. Mm. Yeah, first time that it have ever done at Ucar in its forty five year history and that so,
0: that sort of brought a purpose to the Ucar NCAR as a whole
1: it yeah, seems like yeah so you know it had a, a very clear focus of where it was headed Yeah, and even, you know even the custodians knew how they you know what role they played in this. so it didn't matter whether you were a phd researcher or a custodian you were all contributing yeah. you know, to this mission and I had a lot of you know young researchers that said who had been there a long time and said you know i I really never felt I was part of an organization until I could actually see how I fit into you know the mission of the organization so and then when I went to Tennessee to run a climate institute, it was exactly the same situation they had no this was not 1500 people, but 7,000 people and a billion dollar a year operation. They had no strategic plan. Wow. This is mind-blowing to me. Jeez. So my climate institute was only 200 people, but I helped the lab create a strategic plan that, you know, tied everybody to it and did that from my climate institute also. But then I had a chance. So, you know, I should say that my career has been policy, leadership, and then back to the sciences. Yeah. And so after we finished all the strategic planning in Tennessee, then I got really involved in trying to help small cities prepare for climate change. Because, you know, you got cities like San Francisco and LA and New York, they have a lot of resources, but yeah. small cities have almost no resources and they have no expertise. So we started creating these uh, this model that uh, brought together energy, water, infrastructure, and climate models. And it would allow a city to look at their services in a comprehensive way and decide if we make this choice, how is it going to impact our energy use? Mm-hmm. This way, how much will it impact water? And that's right when I left. Uh, and I left only because the the lab got a new director who was scared to death of Donald Trump. Uh And so they started downplaying climate. Wow. And and I was just bumping heads with this, with the director of the lab. Yeah. And I finally just said, look, you know, I'm, you're not interested in this. This is getting really difficult for me. I'm just going to step down. And I ended up retiring and, yeah, well, I, I
0: want to come back to to the small cities or mid sized cities stuff, but <laughs> I, I saw I was checking you out on um, LinkedIn and I saw some something about American Greenhouses and you funded your you funded your masters and your PhD with that. Can you tell me the, a little bit of the story behind that?
1: Yeah, I. <clears throat> I basically bought a bunch of greenhouses, and I would go down to Florida uh, and rent a very large, the largest U-Haul truck you can buy, and fill it up with uh, indoor plants, and Uh bring it back and put them in my greenhouse, and then rent them out to doctors, uh, dentists' offices, and things like that. and. Were the greenhouses uh, movable or? They were fixed. Okay. I I bought some property and bought these um, greenhouses. They were uh, aluminum frames but covered with double layers of plastic with air between them for insulation. Uh Uh-huh. So I put these plants in the greenhouse just to keep them healthy, and I would rotate them between the greenhouses and all these doctor's offices that I that rented plants for me, and I maintained the plants.
0: Ah, so-, so you were renting the plants. Yeah. And so you had, wait, where were the greenhouses? Were they all in one city, or they were in?
1: They were in the Washington, D.C. area, and all these doctor's offices and dentist's <laughs> office were also in the D.C. area. So... I did that for, uh, six years and it was making enormous amounts of money. I thought about just doing it for the rest of my (laughs) career, but it was incredibly labor intensive. And, um, I was doing it on my own and I did, I never got to go on vacation because I could never trust anybody to not Killed the plants. The one time I did do that, I went on a surf trip to El Salvador, and I got these college students to uh, run the business for two weeks. They killed $85,000 worth of plants. How did that? What do you mean, how? It was during the winter, and I had uh, the heating system tied to my phone, and they didn't respond to the phone call. yeah. And they just, they stayed in bed one night when the heater went down and it was, you know, 10 degrees outside and it it froze every single plant in the greenhouse. (laughs) Jeez. Wait, so
0: how did you, I guess, how did you get into that? How did you recognize that was, there was a possibility to have that as a business?
1: You know, my brothers and I actually had, uh, a business called aquariums, terrariums, and things. And we—it was a retail business where we sold tropical fish and aquariums and, and things like that. We each had a, a component. I uh, had one brother that uh, sold plants, one brother that sold uh, tropical fish and aquariums, and I was the things. I sold skateboards <laughs> and backpacks and stuff like that, and. One day we rented aquariums out to doctor's offices and I was talking to one of the doctors and, he's, and I said, you know, would you be interested in renting plants too? And he said, definitely, I would actually prefer that over aquariums. So we just started marketing that and it turned out that there was no real competition in the D.C. area for that. So at one point we had over a thousand dentists and doctors offices. Wow. How old were you at that point I was well, that was from when I was seventeen till probably twenty six something like that for about ten years
0: yeah, and that funded your all of your education basically
1: it funded everything it funded all my my myself and my two brothers' living experiences, all of our college educations. In fact, we the way we structured this is uh each year one brother would be a hundred percent dedicated to the business and the other two would go to school. We were roughly around the same. We were only separated by a year or two and the very first year we made so much money that none of us had to do that again we could we hired em- employees that could run the retail business mm-hmm. but the greenhouse business was a different story we knew how vulnerable that was since uh you know it was so tied to the weather that uh, you know we had to run that our ourselves but it was you know it was a really interesting period but you know bubby it was also a period when a semester at college was about two hundred dollars. True. Wow. That's yeah. Crazy. So you know, if you had to do that today, there's no way that you could, you know, come up with a hundred thousand dollars for four years of college
0: for three of you. Yeah.
1: Yeah, and live. Yeah. You know, because this that this paid all of our rents. So we we bought all of our cars through the business. You know, so it paid for every single thing in our life. And we, you know, one of the things that was fun about that, though, is I would go on surf trips to Mexico and bring back thousands of dollars of uh, merchandise to the, to the shop. And it could be wind chimes or class terrariums or, you know, whatever it might be, pay for my entire trip, plus make a huge profit. And And I would be buying things from, you know, super poor Mexicans right on the beach. So it was helping everybody. Mm, You know, I developed all these relationships in the Baja with uh, artisans who, you know, were dirt poor. And, you know, they were doing well and we were doing well and I got surf trips and, you know, it was just (laughs) the greatest thing you could ever put together. You know, that decade was a lot of fun, but intensely tiring. Yeah.
0: And I guess looking back at your 20s, let's say, because you had gotten your PhD, what did you get your PhD in? Civil engineering. Okay. And then you also had this side business. Was there a point that you had to sort of decide between two paths that
1: you were seeing? Yeah, and that's right when I finished my PhD, I had decided, look, I had invested all these years in doing that. I, I should take advantage of that. And that's right when I competed for that Congressional Science Fellowship and spent that year in the US Congress. And so that put, you know, I told my brothers, um, you can have my share. I, you know, they didn't buy me out. I just said, you know, this thanks for the experience. And yeah. You know, they took over all the business and, uh, my youngest brother is a psychiatrist and he did exactly the same thing. A year and a half later, he, you know, began his psychiatry career and gave his share to my third brother. And my Mm -hmm. third brother actually stayed in the business until he sold it.
0: Okay. And take me back to that year that turned into 13 years, did you say? in the
1: well the congress. first one, yeah the first one was i got paid by a professional science society called the american geophysical union which i was a member of my whole college career
0: mm-hmm.
1: and they offered to pay your salary for a year if you'd be a science consultant in the congress so you're essentially from the congressman's perspective free help and highly yeah. educated free help so There were 35 of us from different professional societies, so we were a class. And uh, you basically were free to go interview anywhere you wanted on the Hill to work. So I had 60 interviews with congressmen and senators and finally settled on a congressman in the House of Representatives. His name was George Brown and he was from the like redlands area in california the inland empire area yeah uber left wing uh liberal congressman i'm actually pretty conservative <laughs> but in all my interviews i would go and i would talk to you know a, a low level person in the office but george brown was this congressman's name he actually invited me to come in and talk to him and i was supposed to talk to him for 10 minutes and we talked for two hours yeah and we decided that it would be really interesting since our politics were so different to work together and he had been in congress for over 25 years so he was a real states person and i just i loved the year i worked he was uh, the chairman of a science committee in the house as well you know, had a personal office, and I got to work in both. So there were times when I answered constituent mail uh, in his personal office and did an analysis of science topics for him, and then there were other times that I worked on his committee. And that's in the committee work is when I wrote legislation that got passed by into a law. So that was just what, that was, what, was, real quick. What was what was that legislation? Just so I understand, the legislation was at that point there. There was a satellite system called Landsat that actually uh, takes the land images of the land cover of the Earth, and that's what I had used in my PhD work. Mm. And uh, at the time, the Reagan administration was thought that that investment by the federal government was a corporate subsidy and they wanted to eliminate that satellite system. And I wrote some legislation to prevent that from happening because that data is so important for managing natural resources by the federal government, and it, it eventually got passed. And one of the sort of connecting aspects of that was I, I, was play, I mentioned I was playing baseball, with a bunch mm-hmm. of senators. And one of the senators was the guy who was leading the effort to kill this satellite system. Mm. His name was David Stockman. He was a, a congressman from Michigan. And we uh, decided to bet who would win this. He was going to kill it. I was going to save it. We bet a dollar. <laughs> and uh, it, it was a joke the whole time. But he was the guy who got invited by Ronald Reagan to go to the White House and because of the relationship we developed that's why he invited me to go along with him so i was supposed to stay in the congress for 12 months and i only stayed for 11 i left a month early and uh you know that opened up then the next 13 years when i was overseeing all the civilian research in the, in the white house
0: yeah and well, let's, I want to jump towards the end of your career. And I guess more broadly, knowing that you know a lot more about climate science than I do, how would you, how do you see where we're at uh, in the, in the climate sense or climate? We all talk about climate change a bunch, but I'm sure what you understand and what you're thinking about is much different than the general public. When you're thinking about climate change, what are you
1: immediately concerned about? My immediate concern is it's you know, too late to stop what's going to happen. I mm-hmm. mean, if, if we stopped all of our emissions today, it's too late. We're going to heat up close to two degrees. So for me, it's how do you live with that? <clears throat> How do you adapt to it? That's that's why I kind of focus my attention on the small cities because they're, you know, depending on where you're at, uh, you're going to have to approach delivering your water and energy services very differently. Uh, and, you know, this is going to become, you know, really serious in about 20 years. Yeah, you know, as the system, I mean, you, you, you can't really tie, you think about all the flooding that's going on right now, you can't really tie that to climate change yet. You know, you got to really look at those patterns over 15 years. And if they stay the same pattern, uh, then you can tie it to climate change. But there's a lot of variability in the climate. So it could be just, you know, natural variability. And, you know, you have all these storms and in the next five years, you're not going to have storms. But if this continues the way, personally, I believe it is connected, but I could not uh, show you that scientifically Okay. yet. Uh, but if, you know, this pattern continues, then, you know, in 10 years, you could probably say, yes, it is climate change. So to me, it's not, you know, stopping emissions, it's, we're, it's, that's too late. You know, how are you going to adapt to higher temperatures and more intense storms?
0: But is, um, I guess are the, are are emissions at the core of it that if we stop the core, then that will alleviate some of the future, um,
1: Hat, uh, changes, I guess, or it would uh, not add to to the warming if we could do that. But none of that is happening. I mean, mm. no parent, Paris Accord agreement countries are meeting their emission targets. Mm. So we're failing miserable. It's not just the United States, and you know, it's everybody is not meeting their commitment. I mean, one of the nice things about the countries that are still in that Paris uh, accord is that they're at least trying. Yeah. You know, and from a policy perspective and in our country, we're not trying. In fact, we're, you know, you see the Trump administration, you know, trying to move toward coal. Yeah. Yeah. It's crazy. So, <clears throat> you know, if we could stop emissions, yes, we would not add on to the, you know, uh, increase in temperatures that we're already going to experience. But that's not happening. We are continuing to emit lots of greenhouse gases.
0: Yeah. And what's what's your perspective on geoengineering, which I understand to be uh, humans trying to control something in order to reduce the effects, essentially, of climate change.
1: Yeah. I'm. You know, we may have to do it. Uh, there and there's lots of different ideas to that Uh, you know putting chemicals in the ocean injecting dirt into the atmosphere uh, putting big mirrors up in space to block radiation but they all have unintended consequences that we don't understand so if we get to that point we'll probably have to do something but it could lead to something even more catastrophic that nobody really understands
0: Yeah, which is good to understand in itself.
1: Yeah, I mean, you don't. I don't think you know. It's just you think about anything you introduce into the environment has the potential of unintended consequences. I mean, I actually, when I was running that greenhouse business, I was actually running a. I was living on a sailboat, Mm. and I, uh, the marina on the Chesapeake Bay that my boat was in, had a terrible mosquito problem one year and nobody wanted to spray pesticides and i agreed i didn't want to do that either i would i would have just lived with the mosquitoes yeah but the marina voted to buy spiders and introduce them into the ecosystem yeah and to eradicate the mosquitoes so we we bought 10,000 spiders <laughs> and because of the amount of protein in the ecosystem because of all the mosquitoes this spider population exploded.
0: <laughs> yeah, yeah. So,
1: so when you took friends out on your boat and you were raising the sails, thousands of spiders dropped out of the sails.
0: Jeez, it was spiders instead of mosquitoes, and we yeah. were trying to control...
1: You can, you can pick what you don't like, right? <laughs> <laughs> so yeah. as, the, as the spiders killed off the mosquitoes, then the, the spiders eventually sort of died out. But mm. that was, you know, nobody thought that that would be a consequence of this. Well, I figured that it would
0: have Something been. would happen.
1: Yeah, that something would happen. So, you know, whether it's, you know, that or doing some geothermal experiment, there are just crazy consequences. You know, this Earth is really complex.
0: Yeah, it, and we, we think we understand some, but we don't at all.
1: Not really. <clears throat> you know, the Earth is always trying to reach some equilibrium whether it's through climate or the ecosystem or whatever it is. And it's a very, very powerful force. So whatever you put in the way of that equilibrium, you're just going to get rolled over. Which is, I guess, humans right now. Yeah, Yeah, yeah. So you think about, from a climate perspective, the Earth is always trying to push heat from the equator to the poles. That's sort of the thermodynamic system of the earth to try to maintain a a constant temperature okay and that's why the arctic is going to see much higher temperature changes than the equatorial and lateral uh uh, mid latitudes are going to experience because all this heat is being pushed to the the arctic which is going to you know increase sea level rise and you know permafrost thawing and You know, the permafrost has enormous amounts of methane trapped in it, and that's a much more powerful greenhouse gas than CO2. In fact, my nightmare scenario is all the permafrost thaws, catches on fire, all the methane gets released in that fire, and it will absolutely dwarf all the CO2 we've ever put in the atmosphere.
0: Wow. And And
1: real quick, permafrost is
0: basically frozen ground that has gas in it
1: yeah
0: yeah wow and so that could happen if it warms up enough to then thaw out and catch on fire
1: yeah yeah so you know (laughs) yeah i know this is a very unlikely scenario bobby (laughs) but that's it's one of those things that could just catch you by surprise that just Mm. all of a sudden something, I mean, it's happening. You see, you know, Eskimo uh, communities falling into the ocean because the soil that's been frozen for millennial is starting to thaw and there's stronger winds because there's more heat in the atmosphere Mm. and that's generating big waves in the you know sea, the arctic seas and it's undercutting all the land and you know cities are just falling into the ocean in the arctic region so it is starting to happen whether all that methane gets released quickly is another matter that's there's lots of uncertainty about how that could happen how fast it could happen but you know that's the nightmare scenario that i worry about
0: yeah And I I feel like I could go on in this direction for a while, but I guess jumping back towards passion and purpose, which this podcast is geared towards looking back on your life since you were 20, what has been your most consistent passion
1: or looking back, what was your core purpose? Well, that that's a really interesting question. I, you know, as a really young person in my twenties, this was all about surfing and, mm. it was <laughs> and you know, uh, and adventure and things like that. It wasn't until I, I would say my passion has always professionally has always been about the complexity of the world and how you understand that, and not just from a science perspective, but how do you take that and actually make it useful. Mm. You know, so whether I was at UCAR or whether I was in Tennessee, one of the things that always frustrated me is the research world is all about publishing papers. That's, that's what your career is evaluated on. Very little is it evaluated on how you make that applicable to society. So from my perspective, it was always the latter. How do you take that investment that we make as a country and as individuals with our time to make science useful? Mm -hmm. So I would, you know, professionally, I would say that has been my passion through my entire career. And that's been swimming upstream in the research community because that's not how you get evaluated.
0: Yeah. Interesting. Just the way the science community is set up.
1: Yeah. Yeah. So, you know, whether you get tenure or or whatever is not based on how you apply apply your uh, science to society. It's how much research money you brought in, where you publish papers, whether they're really uh, uh, respected journals and things like that very rarely does anybody get any kind of reward for uh, actually taking that research and making sure it's useful in some fashion, which is sort of a broken aspect of the research community.
0: Hmm. Yeah. Cause they're doing, it sounds like they're doing so much important work, but then there's a sort of a missing link.
1: Yeah. So when I went to Tennessee, Uh, and I was sort of introducing myself, I told them one of the things that I want to do while I'm here is to try to use what research we're doing to help society. And all the young researchers were like, why would I want to do that? And about two years later, after sort of drumming this into people, this one researcher came to me and said, I'm so tired of publishing papers that three people in the world read. Yeah. I get what you're saying and can you help me figure out how I can make this more broadly useful? So it took two years to do that. And it's sort of the unusual person that will sort of take themselves out of the normal review process uh, of peer reviewed papers and bringing in money and invest some of their own personal time and trying to make sure that, so, so that individual started helping me with the small cities project, for example, you know,
0: my, my mind is sort of uh, caught back when you said surfing (laughs) (laughs) because I was, I was surfing in Ventura yesterday and it's interesting living in New York right now and surrounded by a lot of gray bricks or big buildings. And then to be sitting out on a surfboard in the ocean, like, wow, like this is still here and I can still do this sort of thing. Um, but I guess my question towards you in that, um, young phase of your twenties that you're surfing and you're also making strides towards, um, what led to your climate career? Um, what, what were you thinking about lifestyle-wise in terms of, or how did you balance your passions that were science-related with your passions that were adventure-related?
1: Well, uh, I would say I had no balance. (laughs) Remember, I was also running the greenhouse businesses. Yeah. So I had, uh, I worked all winter long really, really hard before I started the greenhouse business. So I went to school and worked all winter and I surfed all summer. So that's how I bounced it. Then when I started the greenhouse. business, Wait real quick. Where, where'd you go in the summer? Uh, I went to San Diego. <clears throat> okay. so I, was, I was going to school at university of Maryland. Yep, And I was, you know, doing, you know, odd, jobs all winter long. I drove a school bus. I was a janitor, all, all kinds of different <laughs> things over the course of my undergrad. And then I would drive out to San Diego, uh, usually the beginning of May and not go back until sometime in September and not work at all in the summer. I would just surf every day in the, <laughs> in the Encinitas, La Jolla area in yep. San Diego. And I did that for I don't know, five or six years. Uh, it took me five years to get through engineering school. Yeah, because you had to take uh, quite a, quite a few more credits in in engineering. So passion, you know, how you balance it. I just didn't balance it. I, you know, I just worked all the time. No girlfriends. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> And then when I started the greenhouse business, man, I had no life at all. I was either running the greenhouse business, uh, going to school and, um, you no, know, no vacations for yeah. the, for the years that I had all the greenhouse business. But, you know, again, it paid all my expenses. And then every once in a while I would do one of those, uh, trips to Mexico where I'd bring back a lot of stuff. So I, I shouldn't say I didn't have any vacation, but. Um, you fit it in, I fitted it in, you know, from a entrepreneurial kind of standpoint, but it's an interesting experience. The very first time I did that, I actually illegally rented a car, drove down the Baja, bought all this glassware and wind chimes. I had no idea really what I was doing. I came back across the border and discovered that you can't import stuff into the country unless the country's name is on it, you know, Made in Mexico. So I had a nine-passenger van stacked to the ceiling with stuff, and I had to unload the entire van and take masking tape and write Made in, Ch- in Mexico Whoa. on thousands. Oh, of my things. gosh. Pack it all back in, go back through the border, and they finally let me <laughs> back. <through. laughs> Jeez. So the next time I did that, I actually came with stickers that I had printed <laughs> a company. Yeah. It, I, I had the Mexican uh, vendors actually put this stuff on all the merchandise. <laughs> wow. Yeah. Um,
0: looking back on what you're describing as uh, a lack of balance, what would you what would you tell your 20-year-old self if he had another chance at Doing it over. Would you do anything different?
1: I don't think I would because, you know, putting in that effort allowed me to do, have the resources to do whatever I wanted to do. Mm -hmm. Had I not worked all winter, you know, I would go to school all day long and then I would go work until, you know, three o'clock in the morning and then go to school the next day. But that allowed me to not have to work for almost four months in the summer and be able to go surfing. So that was a trade off for me. It was interesting with all my friends. So, all my surfer buddies that I grew up with didn't have that kind of work ethic. And so they worked construction in the summer in DC in horrific heat and humidity while I was surfing in San Diego. You know, they weren't willing to make the trade off
0: sacrifice that you yeah. did.
1: Yeah. So I would say if there's something you really want to do, you you gotta invest the time to make it yeah. happen, right? Yeah. And for some part of the year it may not be very pleasant, but you know, if you believe the trade off is worth it, you just do it.
0: Yeah. When uh I guess as I move forward with this podcast i'm always looking to talk to interesting and passionate people like yourself who is the person you know that ha- is living with the most purpose or has the most passion that you know
1: well it's actually a, a climate scientist named jim hansen jim hansen hansen yeah and he actually was uh, Columbia University in New York City. And he was probably one of the first guys who started recognizing human contribution to to climate change. Which, wait real quick, what year would have that been? It would have been in early 80s. Okay. So like uh, 81, 82, that kind of time frame. So baby, that was right around the time where the computational capability became good enough that model, the climate models were starting to uh, replicate historical climate data. So there was starting to be some um, confidence mm-hmm. that climate models, if, if they can recreate the past, then you can think that they can actually f- predict something in the future. So he was starting to see that if you only put in natural forcing functions like the orbit, volcanoes, uh things like that, uh you couldn't match the historical data. But when you add in human fossil fuel emissions, yeah, almost dead on. And and to like 80% of the warming was due to humans. So he started really talking a lot about that from a policy standpoint, warning the world. Yeah. And he was actually uh, funded by NASA, and he actually testified in Congress about this in 1984, I think it was. And then I don't know whether you heard about a group of – they're no longer teenagers, but they actually sued the federal government. Was this recently or back then? Well, it's been relatively recent. It's been about the last six or seven years. He sued the federal government about endangering their future. Yeah, And he was the person who uh, sort of galvanized them all together. Mm -hmm. He used to come to science conferences and talk about his grandchildren. Because you know that those that was the generation that would be most impacted by the changes that he foresaw. So I would say he's probably one of the most. He, here's a guy who, and he just got slammed by the science community. because, because? in the beginning, because uh-huh. he, he was so vocal about this, and it, that was at the very beginning where people were starting to make this uh, correlation between you know, the climate and human activity. So he really got out there, maybe, maybe a little bit too quickly, but uh, you know, ninety-eight percent of the climate community fully agrees with him today. He was just one of those guys who had the courage to get out there and really talk. Uh and here's the real irony about this, Bobby, is that was happening when I was in the White House, and because Jim was Funded by NASA, all um, federal employees or people supported by federal research have to have their testimonies reviewed by the White House. I was the reviewer. Wow. And it was really interesting because he um, was saying things that were so novel and so inconsistent with peer reviewed papers that I actually worked with him to negotiate something that was more, more closer to what was in the peer review papers. Yeah, And he agreed with it and everything. And then when he left my office, he went to the Washington Post and said that the White House had censored him. It was a huge deal. Jeez. And I called, him, I called him the next day and I said, Jim, we sat in my office, we worked this out together. And then you went to the Washington Post and said that I censored you? Wow. And I got called, and so this was Bush Sr. After Reagan. Mm-hmm. I got called by the president to come over to his office and said, What the hell? And I explained the situation to Bush Senior. And he said, Well, you did exactly what you were supposed to do. And Jim Hansen and I are good friends still to this day. Uh-huh. You know, we kind of got over it. And you know, it turned out, you know, that. What he was saying at the time was inconsistent with peer reviewed science, but it turned out to be true eventually yep. It took ten years you know for the rest of the climate community to catch up with jim but it was an interesting irony in my life that the guy that I admired the most was a guy that nearly got me fired Wow, at one point in my career. jeez huh. <laughs> yeah. And
0: I want to be respectful of your time, but, well, I think I have two more questions if you have time for it. Sure.
1: Sure. I got, no- I'm retired.
0: <laughs> okay. And I'm in a, uh, I'm also in a transitional phase, so we've got some time. Um, but one question is, I mean, I don't want to put your knowledge to a one phrase answer, but for, What feels like my generation looking for um, what we can do to best make steps forward in response to the climate changing? In terms of taking action, what do you see to be most effective or efficient that you would like people to understand?
1: Well, I mean, it's a bit of a complicated question, but, you know, to me, for your generation, it's being aware and engaged in politics, you know, and that doesn't mean that, you know, you have to be a crazy, you know, right-wing, left-wing, just vote Mm -hmm. and understand why you're voting. So, you know, there's, you could go into the sciences, you could do all that stuff, but right now, To me, what's most important is that your generation, because climate change is a long term thing, um, need to be really vocal. And I I think we have our current president because in 2016, your generation didn't get involved. I think that's going to really change in 2020.
0: Yeah, I'd hope so.
1: Just, uh, you know, just talking to your age group, people seem to be a little bit more engaged. But, you know, I know when I when I was building my the house in San Luis Obispo and I would bring up politics with it was Steph's crowd. They were so bored and so uninterested. Huh. And and I, s- yeah. I, even in the midterm election, I was talking to all of them saying, you know, you need to vote. You know, this is a pivotal, pivotal election. Midterms are usually a yawner, but you know th- that was a time when both the House and the Senate were ruled by the Republicans, so Trump could do anything he wanted to do. Yeah, and uh, none of, very few of them voted. Now they're in their thirties. You're a little younger. It, yeah. You know, I would say it's even more important for your generation. I mean, I don't know whether Steph's generation is just apathetic, but to me, the most important thing from a climate perspective is to get the right policies in our country. Mm -hmm. And with our current Republican trajectory. Yeah. I mean, with the current. Look, I'm not a fan of the Democrats either. (laughs) Mm-hmm. I actually uh, think that they're way too wildly liberal. Uh, I was a registered Republican for most of my life, but didn't really adhere to a lot of their platform. I this year, well, a year ago, I just became an independent because I I don't like either one of these parties. Mm-hmm. But you know, I. Getting back, I just think that your generation really needs to get engaged be aware of the issues vote you know I mean I actually volunteered for John Hickenlooper's campaign I'm working on it he's mm-hmm. he's a crazy long shot yeah but he was a great mayor of Denver, a fabulous governor of the state of Colorado and I think he would he's uh he's like me he's a fiscal conservative social moderate he's a geologist mm-hmm He's an entrepreneur. He created one of the greatest breweries in Denver. That's mm-hmm. entrepreneurial spirit. So, you know, getting getting involved in politics at whatever level you want, whether just voting or whether you know campaigning for our policy to try to make sure that we have more realistic, not just climate, but environmental policies to protect the earth would be something I would say would be very important.
0: Yeah, I think that's a, a good thing to hear from someone like yourself. So I appreciate your perspective on that.
1: Hey, you know, in uh, 1983, right when I went to the White House, one of the things that the Reagan administration said, what what's, would be like another moonshot for the country? Yeah. And they were asking staff to come up with ideas, and I said, uh, trash. Wow because it's just a huge problem. You know, what are we going to do with all the trash that we generate? Wait, did you say 1983? 1983, yeah. Wow. <laughs> so it was before we really started much in the way of recycling as yeah. a as a country. And I, you know, the uh the chief of staff for Reagan basically said, "You want to associate the president of the United States with trash." <laughs> wow. And now it's yeah. Now it's a huge issue, right? Yeah. And- And I think it's going to become even more of an issue um, because, you know, a lot of the third world countries that we used to dump all of our recycling materials won't take them anymore for very good reasons because they're full of toxic materials, which gets back to kind of your degree of, you know, how do you do products that are a little bit more environmentally safe, whether it's the packaging or marketing or whatever it might be associated with them? I think that's still... A viable issue, yeah. You know, that's, that's in, nice to hear. Yeah. In May 19 than it was in 1983.
0: Yeah, it's it's interesting thinking about. I was actually thinking about that this morning. The well, I mean, of course, I wasn't around when the moonshot was uh, happening. I guess, um, but it does seem like that was probably something that brought a lot of people together. Indeed. And then this being climate change bringing a lot of people together, um, whether we whether we chose for it or whether we want it to be or not, but I think
1: there's there's something good about it. No, definitely some and you think about the moonshot. I mean, we spent, you know, in today dollars, you know, like two hundred and seventy billion dollars to go to the moon, something like that. Yeah. Uh, and build a space station that, in my mind, hasn't really done much for the world. Mm. Uh, but it did bring us together in a weird time period when we were still involved in the Cold War with the Russians. So that was sort of a chest-thumping American thing. It probably had more to do with the chest-thumping than something good coming out of it. You know, huh. Climate change is a different deal. Yeah. We're we're talking about whether we survive on the planet or not. And you would think That'd that would be uh, that it would really galvanize but it's done the opposite. It is, you know, really made, it's been a divisive issue. There's actually a study done every year by Yale University that actually analyzes uh people's thinking about climate change. It asks questions is it real? Is it created by humans? And it just stays the same year after year without you know more really? people, yeah more people thinking that this is an issue and again it gets back to politics. If you look at the sort of the voting of even the midterms and you see the red and blue in the country, blue Coast red center yeah it's not changing very much you know and a lot of the people in Tennessee that weren't associated with my research community, just people I met who are staunch Trump supporters, they believe this is a total hoax. They believe the president. But, you know, this is just a hoax and it's just not changing very much. I know it's, um, there's some things of
0: hope and then there's some things that are just so, uh, I guess, perplexing that I'm like, you know, we ha- I have a different frame of mind so it's hard to put myself in their shoes And maybe that's what we have to do is communicate more because there is such a there is such a divide.
1: Yeah, no, there is. And, you know, a a lot of my non-research friends in Tennessee's were gun toting Trump supporters. They were really great people. Yeah. And, And we would talk about, you know, issues like this. But I could never tell them, hey, that's really stupid. I would just ask a question. Why do you believe that? Yeah. And if, if they couldn't give me any other answer than, well, Trump said it was true, <laughs> then, you know, I, I knew I couldn't pursue – if that was their answer, that Trump said it was true, then I knew I couldn't pursue that. They were just kind of brainwashed and I wasn't going to win any kind of argument. But if they had a reasonable answer, then we could discuss it, right? Yeah. yeah. So for me, that was – in fact, that is always – It's another kind of personal leadership that I learned is that when you're in a tough situation, don't confront people. Just ask questions, you know, because you'll learn a lot from that. You know, if they've got an answer that you can discuss, then, you know, they've they've been thoughtful about it. They've read about it. But if they give you just a, you know, silly answer without it's really clear they don't even understand what they're talking about then you can push them a little bit more with questions. But at some point, it's, you know, you're not going to get very far with them because they're not even putting any effort into understanding what they're talking about.
0: Yeah, I think you have a good point. And even just your questions might make them think about their own responses rather than you telling them what you think and them not thinking about it further. I have one more question for you. What is the book that has most impacted your thinking?
1: Just in general. Yeah. It's very, it's actually very recent and it's called uh, the soul of America by John Meacham. He's a okay. historian and he actually um, researched from George Washington to Trump, all the presidents that have used divisiveness as a, and fear as a way to get elected. Uh, his main focus is to show the moral, ethic, ethical principles of what it means to be a president. Hmm. A president should be our moral, ethical leader. Wow. Yeah. He goes through all those presidents from George Washington on and compares the moral and ethic levels of the president's. And typically the ones that are not moral and ethical are ones that actually use fear. And this is around immigration, interestingly Mm -hmm. enough, or or slavery or whatever is going on where there's a lower class. And they use that lower class to strike fear in the majority's minds. And wow. if we don't do this, you know, the country's going to be overtaken by the Chinese or the Irish or the Catholics or the African-Americans. It's always something new. It's always something where, you know, they're really trying to rip the threads of democracy apart just to get elected. And he didn't do this. He started writing this book long before the 2016 election. But it's so... Relevant. Relevant, yeah. It's incredible. I actually listened to got it uh, via uh, Audible. Yep. And I listened to on a trip from Denver to San Luis Obispo. I've now listened to it four times. Wow, That's, jeez. Just because, you know, I don't really absorb that well when I'm listening, uh-huh. as opposed to reading. I need to actually get this book and, okay. and read it but it's one of the best books I think I've ever read. And it's very different than the history that I learned in uh, high school and college. I want to pick it up. It's, it's really a great book. I'm, I'm sort of evangelical about your generation reading. I tried to get Steph's generation to re- read this book, and I don't see any of them reading it. Okay. Um, but it's so timely right now. I'll I'll
0: definitely reach back out once I read it.
1: Yeah. No I'm very interesting book.
0: Yeah. And well, thank you for chatting with me today. I think it's uh made me think in a in a new way. Well my pleasure. Uh good luck with all your choices. You got some coming up. Okay, guys. I hope you enjoyed this episode of the Bub on Purpose podcast. If you would like to get show notes from the learnings that I hope you gathered during this conversation you can email bub on purpose at gmail.com and you will get a response with all of the show notes. Make sure to title the subject of your email something like show notes or your grandma's cookie recipe, your friend's dog's middle name, or really anything. I'll get back to you. Also, I would love if you would send me your suggestions of what you did or didn't like or who you think I should interview next on the podcast. And again, please send that to bub on at gmail.com. Thanks for listening. If you could subscribe and share, that would be awesome. Uh, if you don't want to, let me know why. And maybe we can make the podcast better. Thank you so much for listening. Hey, go follow us at bub on purpose on Instagram. Uh, I don't know. I just said us. It's just me.